God. Amen. Turn again, Daniel chapter 11. We're going to be moving to the end of the chapter. In the last uh, couple of sermons in this chapter, I have pointed out the very precise fulfillment of prophecies that the angel revealed to Daniel from what was inscribed in the writing of truth as, uh, as it's called in uh, Daniel uh, 10.21. Now this is the most extensive detailed section of fulfilled prophecy in all of scripture. John Walvoord commented on this, quote, the amazingly detailed prophecies of the first 35 verses of this chapter containing as they do approximately 135 prophetic statements, all now fulfilled, constitute an impressive introduction to the events that are yet future, beginning in verse 36. Now this morning we're going to be examining the last section of this chapter, which is still future for us. And I will point out why we believe it is still future prophecy in a few moments. But first I want to read through the section and make some general comments uh, about prophecy. So Daniel 11, starting in verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of the women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and he will cause him to rule over many. And he will parcel out land for price. And at the end of time, uh, of the time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. He will enter countries, overflow, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hands, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against all other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to an, his end and no one will help him. Now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. 
Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. First thing to notice there in Daniel 12, 4, is he says there's going to be an increase of knowledge. Yeah, I know, I've jumped all the way to the end of what we read. This is going to be part of some general comments. He says there's going to be an increase from the time of this prophecy after it was given. And while it's certainly true, there has certainly been an explosion of knowledge in all fields of knowledge since the 6th century, especially in the last four or 500 years, that's not the context here. That's not what it's talking about. The context before and after this verse is concerning future events. And since Daniel's prophecy, there have been all the post-exilic prophets. Those are the prophets that came after the exile was over. That includes Zechariah, which has extensive sections of still future prophecy. There's also been the first coming of Jesus and his teachings. And he has several passages of recorded of his teaching concerning what's still future for us. And then there's all the writings of the apostles, and that includes Revelation. Many passages dealing with what's going to be coming in the future. And these various prophecies give us additional insights into what was revealed to Daniel here in chapter 11. Now second, verse 4 also references many going back and forth. Now that appears from Amos 8.12 to be a vain quest running to and fro to know the word of the Lord. But there are many that have a particular interest in future prophecy and present themselves as expert in the subjects. To me they seem like these going back and forth and back and forth. The result, many books, lots of material out there seeking to give their own particular bent on how it's all going to work out. The result of this is that the more of these books you read, the more of these seminars you attend, the more confused you get. Some of you can relate to that. You've been to these things. Um, every commentary I have on Daniel, including those writing from the same theological perspective, can differ widely on their interpretation or how they think all the events in Daniel 11 are going to end up working out the particulars of the prophecy, how they're going to be fulfilled. When I was young, there were two special weeks of meetings in church every year. One was revival meeting. I guess for those of who are, come from a Southern Baptist background, you know what I'm talking about. And the other was prophecy conference, a week on dealing with prophecy. And uh, so I had a lot of that growing up. And many of those presenting their stuff spent a lot of time interweaving current headlines into prophecy. And a lot of times it would be very interesting, um, but the speculations they gave later, later proved to be false. And so it then started calling into question, well, what else did they say was also false? You see, figuring out the future prophecy is difficult, and so there needs to be a lot of humility in approaching it. There may be many things that are very clear, and there are, but there are also things that could be filled in many different ways and time sequences. And frankly, the only way we're really going to know what is in these prophecies is when we look back on them after they're all fulfilled, and that'll make perfect sense. For example, we're told in many passages about the day of the Lord. It's coming. But descriptions in various passages using that phrase are so diverse that it becomes apparent there are different events and time periods in which that term is applied. 
And it takes a lot of careful analysis to try and distinguish what a particular passage is even referring to. And even then, sometimes there's uncertainty. We also know that Jesus has promised to return from heaven. But the diversity of descriptions reveal there's at least two events in which he's returning. The relationships between the timing and conjunction between the two events is widely disputed even among Christian scholars. Now I put a paper uh, in the back there, or it should be in the back there. Uh, I've put these out before. One is dealing with the day of the Lord. One is simply a description of some of the differences that show there's many different days of the Lord. Another one is a chart. And it has every listing of where that phrase is used and what events are related to it. You can easily look through that and go, oh, there are many events that get this title. There's also one back there that deal with uh, the differences of the rapture compared to the second coming. And it's not hard to conclude, when you, especially when you see in a chart like that, there's at least two different events, not one. Now, that's the kind of diligence that has to be done to try to start figuring some of this stuff out. So, this is not an easy subject. And I'm warning you in advance, this is not an easy subject. Uh, I've spent years wrestling around with this stuff. And uh, there's still things that I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how it, it comes out. So, if you leave a little confused, it's okay. Okay? We're not going to put, I, I don't have any chart, that here's where everything fits. Uh, some of those can be helpful. But I'm really pushing is there needs to be some humility on our part. There are some things very clear here, but when it comes to issues of eschatology, there are issues we can be dogmatic about, but there's others we can't. We can be dogmatic. Jesus Christ is returning physically, period. That's his own promise, right? Um, so we should be humble and gracious where the things aren't quite so clear and allow room for disagreement on particulars on how all these prophecies are going to be fulfilled. It's tragic that churches have ended up splitting over some of this stuff as they refuse fellowship with one another over what really are secondary issues. I think that actually shows more of a lack of their own Christian character and maturity more than anything else. So. We need to be humble. Now third, there are some things we can be clear about. Here's one of them. This entire prophecy, remember it starts in chapter 10, he goes through chapter 11 as he reveals the prophecy, is about the nation of Israel. We saw that back in 10.14, the angel said to Daniel, now I have come to give you understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision pertains to the days not yet. So it's future. So here at the end of the prophecy we find that it pertains to what will happen to a very evil individual who will prosper until quote the indignation is finished. That is a reference to what he had said earlier about a time of purging and purifying who? The Jews. We find in Daniel 12.1, Michael, he is the great prince here, he rises to rescue from among Daniel's people those who are found written in the book. So again, it's a reference to the Jews. 
Major errors in understanding future prophecy revolve around a faulty understanding of to whom it was written. And too many Christian theologians and commentators wrongly place the church where only the nation of Israel belongs. And this is another case of that. Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 specifically concerns the nation of Israel as God's chosen people, not the church. Now just to clarify, whatever political entity exists at that time that would call itself Israel is not what's being talked about here. We don't know what's going to happen in the Middle East. Who knows? Israel could be subjugated. But we know at whatever time this is going to come up, he is dealing with his people, the nation of Israel, not the political entity, but his people. That's who this is about, okay? If I can make nothing else clear, understand that part, okay? It's about the people. God's chosen people, named Israel, not the church, okay? And then finally, I'm going to be explaining the rest of the book of Daniel from a premillennial, pre-tribulational theological position. That is our doctrinal position as a church. We've taken that position because we believe it gives the best overall explanation of the many, many scriptures that pertain to future prophecy. Now, we are humble and gracious to those who hold other positions, but we are confident in our own. And while arguments from other positions can point out weaknesses in our own, none of them have yet proven superior or really a cause for any serious doubt. If you're interested in more on that subject, I can recommend books to you. There's lots of books on this stuff. Um, or there's actually some video recordings of uh, the class when I teach theology. There's sessions on eschatology, and those are also on the website. And there'll be a link in uh, <coughs> the uh, posting of this sermon. Now, the first thing to note <coughs> in our textual study this morning is there's a definite transition from verse 35 which ends the section on Antiochus Epiphanes, we talked about him last week, and verse 36, which begins a new section dealing with a future Antichrist. Now, I pointed out last week that verse 35 leaves things open-ended. Refining, purging, purifying the Jews taking place. Quote, until the end time, because it's still to come at the appointed time. That's going to be continuing on. Now, verse 36 begins talking about a king, a king who's going to do as he pleases. Now, the previous section was very careful not to refer to Antiochus Epiphanes as a king because he was a usurper. He is someone who seized the kingdom, though the honor of the kingship had not been conferred upon him. And though Antiochus Epiphanes was an evil and despicable man, this king goes far beyond that. Now in addition, in contrast to the previous detailed prophecies in the chapter, which can be easily coordinated with specific historical events, the prophecy from here, verse 36 on, through chapter 12, cannot be coordinated, though many have tried. I find it interesting that liberal scholars say that the previous section was too detailed to be prophecy. They say it must be history. But about this section, they say it is too vague to be clearly identified with anything. Hmm. 
So we'll just say it that way. They recognize it's different. It's talking about somebody different. So that inability has led some to conclude that this might be fictional or metaphorical rather than historical. Well, it is simple. The man so described in this section through verse 34, uh, 45, it is not Antiochus Epiphanes. It is not Herod the Great. It is not Constantine the Great. It is not the Pope. It is not the Roman Empire. It is not Stalin or Hitler or any other historical person or system. This is a man who is yet to come and this detailed prophecy about him will be fulfilled in the future. This is the little horn of the prophecy of Daniel 7 who is often popularly referred to as Antichrist and that is how we're going to refer to him. Now the first description of him in verses 36 through 38 is that he is a king. He is going to do as he pleases. Another, we see it's not Antiochus Epiphanes because he didn't get to do as he pleased. Well, did he? Rome came in and forced him out. And that's where we left him. This king regards no law except himself, which is why Paul describes him as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, which we read earlier in the service. In Daniel 7.25, he's described as even seeking to make alterations in times and in law. He will be a dictatorial despot. Description of him in these verses is not necessarily chronological with the actions described in verses 40 through 45. My own conclusion, it is his actions in the chronolo uh, chronology of four, verses 40 45 that reveals the full description of his character in these earlier verses. So the first part, here's his character from 40 through 45. Here is now a chronological sequencing. He is going to be a supreme egotist. He disregards all gods and religions in favor of himself. There have been many men who thought themselves to be some sort of God. And they, but even they, usually recognized other gods. That was true of the Caesars. It was true of Antiochus Epiphanes. This man will think of himself as above all of that. In fact, there are seven statements in those three verses regarding his relationship to the gods. Verse 36, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. He will show no regard for the desire of women. He will show no regard for any God. He will magnify himself above them all. And he will honor a God of fortresses. This man is going to be an atheist set against not only the true God and the promised Messiah, but without respect for any religion. Now the phrase there, desire of women, is interesting the grammatical construction of the phrase bears this out. It's the same as in Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, and 1 Samuel 9, 20, and it indicates this is something desired by women and not a desire for women as some have tried to make it. 
okay? The desire that a woman would have, not a desire a man would have for a woman. Now the context here then would make this a reference to the desire that a Jewish woman had to be the mother of Messiah. It becomes a reference Messiah. He has no regard for Messiah. He's called Antichrist because he goes beyond just, just disregarding Jesus Christ. He is actually set against him, anti, against Christ. 1 John 2.18 describes, Children is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. He defined Antichrist in chapter 2, verse 22, as the one who denies the Father and the Son. In 1 John 4, 3, he goes on, the Antichrist is one that does not confess Jesus. And 2 John 1, 7, the Antichrist is one uh, as those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. That are, those are Antichrists. So there are many Antichrists, according to John, but there is one that would be called the Antichrist. Now other scriptures speak of his blasphemous character. Back in Daniel 7, he was described as one who utters great boasts. He is one who would speak out against the Most High, chapter 7, verse 25. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, he is described as the one who, quote, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God, unquote. Now that would be the abomination of desolation spoken by Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 in reference to what Daniel had said in Daniel 9, 27. That would be the fulfillment of it. The description in Revelation 13 agrees with this. He's the beast out of the sea who opens his, quote, his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, unquote. And those who dwell on the earth at that time will worship him and those that will not will be subject to execution. Now the only God he recognizes is the God of fortresses. This is a not a personified God like the Greek or Roman gods, but this is war itself as the object to which he devotes himself, his time, his abilities, his energy, his finances. This is a different God from those of his ancestors because he is a complete materialist. The ability to conquer is his God. Daniel 11:38 describes his wealth as being spent in the pursuit of war as if it were the actions of religious homage. In fact, the text there says he will honor the, this God of fortresses with gold and silver and costly stones and treasures. His actions of war are described in verse 39 and verses 40 through 45. His blasphemous beliefs then lead him to take action against even the strongest of forces, fortresses, which he will conquer. He then parcels out honor to those who acknowledge him and to those willing to pay the price that he will set up to be his puppet rulers over conquered territory. 
And while that price will certainly include wealth and treasure, it may also include the price of their souls as they would worship this blasphemous despot. Now other scriptures describe these kinds of actions, but there will be a limit to its length. In Daniel 7.25, he wears down the saints of the highest one for a time, times, and half a time. Then he is judged and destroyed. Here in Daniel 11.36, it is given to him to, quote, prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. So yes, he will be very powerful, he will be victorious, but only for a certain period of time. In Revelation 17, the peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues are personified as a harlot with, that the ten horns and the beast will make desolate and naked, and which they will eat up and burn with fire. So they will turn against him. The beast with his allied puppet kings is going to conquer, consume, and destroy other nations in war. But again, this only will continue until the words of God shall be fulfilled, as stated in Revelation 17, 17. So already from the beginning, though a great conqueror, he will be limited. Verses 40 through 45 look at the wars of Antichrist. Now, it's a little confusing because there's some question as to whether this is referring to two kings or three kings and how it then coordinates with other prophecy. Now, the section concludes, or the section begins, rather, describing that at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. Now, if the hymn there is referring to the king of the north, there are just two kings, and the king of the north is a reference to Antichrist. If the hymn there is referred to is Antichrist, then the king of the north is a separate power who storms against him. Now, I take it there are three kings. The king of the south is set against Antichrist. The king of the north is set against Antichrist. And the events that follow are the victories of Antichrist, not king, the king of the north. So the king of the south, Egypt, king of the north, Syria and its allies, they attack the area of Israel, which is controlled by Antichrist. Now we need to remember a couple of things examining the actions that take place here in verses 40 to 45. First, according to Daniel 7, the Antichrist, this little horn that arises out of ten kings, makes up a revived Roman Empire. Second, the focus of the prophetic scriptures here is on what is going to have an effect on the nation of Israel. I pointed that out, that out before. Scripture prophecies focus on Israel, not everything that's going around. We saw that in the prophecies concerning the king of the north and king of the south. There were other kings that took part of uh, uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom, but these are the only two that count because Israel's in the middle of them. So the same thing, focus here, is still on the nation of Israel. The Antichrist will be given power to conquer at will, but that doesn't mean he will have conquered every nation uh, and it does not mean that the nations he has conquered and has set up with puppet kings are going to remain loyal to him. Every despot knows that you may have conquered a territory. It doesn't mean they're going to stay happily in your control. You have uh, insurrections. Now recall as well that the 70th week of the prophecy in Daniel 9.27 begins with he, referring to the Antichrist, is going to make a firm covenant 
with the many for one week, the he, the prince of the people who is to come, being Antichrist, the firm covenant is with Israel. It is because of this covenant that he is aligned with the nation of Israel so that an attack against it is an attack against himself. He's guaranteed their safety. It is assumed that the king of the south's collision with him, the kings of the north storm against him in verse 40, or toward the direction of Israel, since that happened throughout the early sections of Daniel 11. These two nations battled each other. Here, they're actually going after Israel. If that is true, then the Antichrist covenant with Israel is what brings him into action. However, the actions of these two kings may also have been directed against other territories held by Antichrist. They're going at least that. They may have been trying to do other things as well, but they're at least going against Israel. So the king of the north attacked a strong force of, quote, many chariots with horsemen and many ships. So this is a major military engagement. Verse 40 describes his overwhelming response. It says, quote, he will enter lands, overflow them, and pass through. 41 through 43 then add, quote, He will also enter the beautiful land, that's Israel. He'll enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against the other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. He will rule over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the desirable things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. So, again, the beautiful land, that refers to Israel. And from there, he continues on. He conquers Egypt and the borders of, of uh, Libya and Ethiopia. Now, this would mean that he defeats the kings of the north first and then overflows south. Apparently, his actions are so quick and focus on Egypt, he doesn't bother to the countries to the east, Edom, Moab, Ammon, which is modern Jordan. He gains control of the wealth of the areas conquered, including some sort of hidden treasures of gold and silver. Remember, that's important for anybody in military action. You have to finance it. Now, just as he is victorious in this military action, in verse 44, describes the next battle. But reports from the east and from the north will dismay him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and devote many to destruction. Now, I found this verse intriguing for the following reasons, and this is my own speculation. I will let you know when I'm speculating, okay? Um, it would seem to me, for a man whose only God is war, that the, it would have been unlikely that the prospect of another war would be something that would upset him. In fact, it would seem like it's all right, we're going to go again, and he would be conquering, and that would be from the east. We're not told how far east he had originally conquered. Because for him, it'd be gain more territory, gain more wealth. That's what he seems to love, is war. So if it's only an army from the east, that could be a possibility. But there's this army coming from the north. Now, we know that he already had conquered the areas to the north. And so this would be very disturbing because it means there's an insurrection within lands he's already conquered. And therefore he is going to uh, pour out a great wrath as described here. All right? 
So just to make sure you understand my speculation, and it is speculation, rumors from the east, rumors from the north. The rumors to the east, we don't know if he'd ever conquered any of those, so for a guy who loves war, that would seem like, great, I get another war. But if it's coming from the north, then these are territories I've conquered. I've got an insurrection on my hands. That's a different prospect, and therefore, I think, a good explanation for his wrath. In verse 45, we tell what happens. He's now overflowed the beautiful land. He's in Israel. It says, He will pitch his tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. The chronology in verses 40 through 44 may be the actions that bring the Antichrist into residence in the land of Israel because that is the place that's between the seas. That would be the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea and uh, the beautiful holy mountain. That would be Mount Zion. Now, it's difficult to coordinate the chronology here in Daniel 11, 40 through 45, with other passages dealing with, we know, end-time war, like Ezekiel 38 and 39, Zechariah 14, Matthew 24, and the book of Revelation. For example, commentators variously try to coordinate Ezekiel's prophecies of the invasion of Israel by Gog and Magog, here with verses 40 and, through, and 41, and then verse 44, or at the end of verse 45. They'll try and put it different places. Again, my own speculation, okay, here's where I lean into understanding this, is the events here in Daniel 11, 40 through 45, occur during the first part of the 70th week prior to the abomination of desolation. Remember the tribulation period, that 70th week from Daniel uh, 9, is seven years, and we know there's right in the middle of it, there's going to be the abomination of desolation because it's marked off at the three and a half year mark. I'm taking these verses saying this is occurring during that first half of the period before the abomination of desolation. The end of Daniel 11:45 then would occur in the second half of the 70th week, coordinating with the rest of Matthew 24, 15, Revelation 7 through 19, Ezekiel 38 and 39, and Zechariah 14. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is particularly difficult to coordinate because it begins with a period when Israel is dwelling in security. That's Ezekiel 28.8. It ends with the armies of Gog and Magog and their allies being destroyed by such things as an earthquake, fighting with armies, pestilence, torrential rain, hailstones, fire, and brimstone, so that the Lord is sanctified and made known to the nations. Don't worry, we will eventually be looking at Ezekiel 20, those sections. So you'll We'll catch up with those at some other point. Um, what is stated in Daniel 12.1 also lends support this conclusion. So some of this is dealing with the first half of the tribulation period, some with the second half. The second half, we know from what Jesus says in Matthew 24, is the period of great tribulation. Beyond anything that's ever happened before, that matches Daniel 11.45. There's a period of huge it hadn't been seen before. That brings us to chapter 12, verse 1, because we see Michael, the archangel, now in action. Verse 1, chapter 12. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will stand. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And the phrase... Now, at that time, refers to the end time that had been referred to in the previous chapter. 
11 verse 40. And it could be understood to be concurrent with the previous verse instead of subsequent. The statement about a time of previously unknown distress can only fit into the second half of the tribulation period. That's why I lean that this is uh, the proper uh, explanation of it. Okay? Nothing the previous verses begins to compare with the great tribulation that Jesus described in Matthew 24 or the trumpet and vile judgments in Revelation verse chapters 8 through 16. Now this Michael is the same one that we were introduced to back in Daniel 10, 13. Jude 1, 9 states specifically he is an archangel. And he has the specific responsibility to the nation of Israel. This is not Christ, it's not some other human or spiritual person. The specific purpose here for Michael is to protect and rescue the remnant of Israel whose names are written in the book uh, described. The phrase, your people, occurs twice in this verse, so it places the emphasis, Michael's actions concern Daniel's people who are the Jews, not the church, the Jews. So again, no reference to, no allusion to the church. Now there have been some questions as to what action Michael takes in this verse because there's of a misunderstanding the term translated in the NASB, the, KJ, uh, the KJV, the New King James, and the ESV as arise. Probably a better translated by both Young's translation and Darby's as stand up or in the LSB is rendering as stand in keeping with the related verb in the same verse to stand watch or stand guard. Both Yamad and Ahamed are formed the same verb, Ahmad. They're referring to the same kind of thing. So Michael arises, he stands up in the sense he appears on the scene to take his place in standing guard over these peoples whose names are written in the book. He is not arising or standing up in the sense of leaving. Amazing enough, there are those that will translate it that way. He is taking on his responsibility. He is guarding these people. And he will fulfill that responsibility, protecting this remnant of the Jews whose names are written in the book. Now the next couple of verses jump to the resurrection, the righteous that will follow this time. I will cover that next week. This morning I only want to point out that the angel leaves Daniel with the great hope of a future resurrection. And you can see that this would probably be a needed encouragement. He's just described, and for Daniel all this was future, he described horrible things going on. Ending with things that are even more horrible. So all these terrible things, it would be a wonderful blessing to see the other side of it. The resurrection's coming. And that we have to keep in mind ourselves. When we're looking at prophets of the future, we're not going to escape. There's going to be terrible things going to happen in the future. But we have the information about what's beyond that as well. So we take courage, just like Jesus told us in John 16, 33. These things have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer or be encouraged. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Now, I want to conclude with a few general statements about 
the prophecy of this coming Antichrist. First, these prophecies are going to be fulfilled just as surely as the prophecies in verses 1 through 35 that have already been fulfilled and testified by history. Just because they haven't taken place yet doesn't mean they're not as sure. They are absolutely as sure. In fact, looking from our position, looking back on fulfilled prophecy, encourages us and makes an absolute, these things are going to happen. We can be absolutely assured of it. God is going to fulfill everything he has said. And third, be wary of speculators who read current news headlines into the fulfillment of these prophecies. Um, current events show trends. They reveal ways in which prophecies can be fulfilled. But world affairs change very rapidly. And I know it can be very interesting and, and, and looking all these details. Oh, well, this just happened. This just happened. This is going to coordinate with this. Is, and we're getting fulfilled. Relationships between countries change rapidly. When I was young, it was always the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union. Because Gog and Magog, well, the Soviet Union controlled that territory. Where's the Soviet Union now? In the trash heap of history, right? Now, the areas of Gog and Magog are still there, but what political entity will hold at that time? I don't know. We're not there yet. Also, things change rapidly, okay? Very rapidly. The collapse of the Soviet Empire, for those of us alive and witnessing it, was incredible. It's not something we could have imagined could have happened. Well, don't think that our own nation can't collapse the same way. It can. Other nations that do, did not exist then suddenly appeared on the, the map. I remember trying to teach our boys uh, geography, and we couldn't find a map that actually had the right nations on it. Because it kept changing. I was like, well, this is where this nation used to be. Well, this one already changed its name. And no, it's now its borders. They change rapidly. So keep those things in mind. Be careful of those who just get into speculating. It is our belief the events described in these passages I talked about today is, are going to occur after the rapture of the church. And things will happen very rapidly at that point. And finally, the importance of these prophecies is demonstrating the the sovereignty of God as history unfolds according to his decrees given long ago moving toward the culmination of the ages. You and I can trust our God for the future because the future is in his hands. He holds it. And he holds us as well. And so we can be secure. The most important of his promises is salvation, isn't it? The promise that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for us. That God, the second person of the triune Godhead, became a man and dwelt among sinners, us, sinless himself, and then voluntarily died as the redemption price for our sin. And then rose again on the third day, proving every claim about himself and every promise is true. And so when he tells us that he is gone now and he's ascended to heaven, he's the right hand of the Father, and he's preparing a place for us, 
then we know it's true. And he will return one day for those of us that belong to him. Those who do not belong to him yet, if that occurs, hey, occurs this afternoon, I'm, I'm ready. If you're not ready, though, you will be able to look at and go, oops, <laughs> I should have believed earlier, but I'm sure going to believe now because it's true. That's the point of it all. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and these great blessings. Thank you that we can trust you absolutely for the future. Even when there's things that, uh, from a human perspective, are quite disturbing. Yet we are at peace, complete peace, whatever comes. Father, whatever tribulation comes in our life simply for living for Christ. And we know that that will be true. We will be slandered, lied about. Uh, your word tells us that. Yet we can be at peace because even that is also in your hands. And you are the one who comforts us, encourages us. In Jesus' name, amen.